And this is Naomi. We're 40-something moms and first cousins who know what it's like to veer off the path assigned to us. We've juggled motherhood, marriage, college, and career as we questioned our faith traditions while exploring new identities and ways of seeing the world. Without any maps for either of us to follow, we've had to figure things out as we go and appreciate that detours and dead ends are essential to the path. Along the way, we've uncovered a few insights we want to share with fellow travelers. We want to talk about the questions we didn't know who to ask and the options we didn't know we had. So whether you're feeling stuck or already shaking things up, we are here to cheer you on and assure you that the best is yet to come. Welcome to Uncovered, Life Beyond. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Uncovered, Life Beyond. This is Naomi. And this is Rebecca. And we're here today to talk about the complicated feelings that can come up around Mother's Day, Father's Day, really any holiday that involves family, especially for those of us who are breaking cycles or maybe breaking with tradition or with how things were expected to go in our families of origin. And it can be really difficult at these times to navigate those holidays, not to mention our own feelings and memories, and really look at the family relationships as they are and as we wish they would have been. Yeah. And, you know, I think especially like when our education and even our exposure to the broader world has been so limited, we often struggle to put words and meaning to our experiences. That knowledge is so necessary, I think, for seeing the nuance in difficult situations and in difficult emotions. Right. Because there is so much nuance. And I think without the nuance, it really is even more difficult than it needs to be. But then, of course, when your view of the world is shaped by uneducated religious leaders who are claiming to interpret an ancient text from the Bronze Age, then the only categories you have for understanding the world around you and including your relationships are good and evil, right? God or the devil, heaven or hell. There's just not a lot of room for nuance. Right. I cringe when I think about how categorized I used to see life. We had a nice, tidy little box for good people and for bad people. And I'm learning that holding both love and respect for the humanity of the person, especially, while also acknowledging imperfections, and particularly in our parents, can be really, really difficult. Culturally, we frame those conversations about parents and adult children as either or. Either you're a respectful and grateful child, or you're rebellious, you're angry, and we're not given much space to hold both of those because both of those often are true. It saddens me how quickly when people do try and navigate both of those emotions, they're invalidated, their experiences are invalidated, and so quickly labeled as bitter and ungrateful. Right. And that label of bitter and ungrateful is often used as a way to invalidate really valid concerns, right? Valid or problematic situations that do need to be addressed. And when we turn the focus on the person, when we turn the focus on the whistleblower, then that situation continues. 
Right. It's, it's such an easy way to shut down uncomfortable conversations, conversations that certainly need to happen, but it's so effective and so powerful when we label people that dare speak up that way. It's so effective. It's sadly effective and how quickly it shuts down those conversations. Agreed. And so when we are trying to hold the tension between those two extremes, right? There's just not much guidance or support or model for doing that. And it's also not just as easy as saying it's a 50-50 thing, right? Like right. I feel equally grateful and equally um, not. <laughs> right. <laughs> because right. what if I'm 85% angry and only 15% grateful? What do we do with that? Right. The other thing that I am learning is that this connect you know, being 85% angry and 15% grateful or 85% grateful and 15% angry, whatever it is, that disconnect doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It simply means you're in that middle part of the difficult and painful process of learning how to hold both. That messy middle is so important. And if you find yourself almost feeling like I am both, but I don't know what to do with it. No, I'm more on one side than the other side. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. I'm just here to tell you you're not. That is part of the process. And learning how to hold both of them is part of that process. We desperately need to give more grace to both ourselves and others. So like we were taught not to air our dirty laundry and to pretend like all is forgiven and forgotten. We, we are expected to act and give the impression that we've certainly allowed Jesus to heal our pain. To speak up is in fact this direct indication that obviously we have not received God's healing. And what if dirty laundry is simply life? Life that needs to be valued, life that was difficult, life that needs to be processed and talked about. And it's life that happened. We've experienced it. But the other thing I'm learning is our kids are going to experience it to some degree too. It might look different from ours, but they're going to experience life. They're going to have dirty laundry. And I want to create a space for my kids to be able to process that too, even the dirty laundry I've given them. And I am convinced that that messy part of life deserves respect. It deserves a voice. And more and more, when I get this feeling that someone really, really wants me to remain silent, whether it's a direct conversation of please shut up, or if it's just a more passive request, more and more I ask myself, if I remain silent, who am I protecting? That silence rarely protects the person that needs protection. And silence almost always protects the system. And typically, it only makes the pain grow. Wow, I couldn't agree more. And I think that secondary pain of being silenced is often more damaging and, and does more to inhibit healing than, than anything else, than the original cause for that pain. And, you know, I wanted to go back to something that you were saying there about that emphasis on pretending all is forgiven right as soon as as soon as a problem is brought up as soon as a conflict is brought up there's that move to go directly to forgiveness for the injured party <laughs> for the party who needs protection absolutely and and i've learned there's a term for that and it's called spiritual bypassing and it's when you use spiritual terms spirituality 
as a way to avoid those negative emotions, as a way to avoid dealing with the messiness of life. And I know at times in life when I've been going through a difficult time, for example, when, when my marriage was in trouble and I couldn't find any stories about people who were in the middle of it. Like everything was about you know, when everything has been resolved, right? When everything is the way it's supposed to turn out. And there's so little space for that messy middle. And I think that's really important because like you said, it's life. I've often observed that, and my critique is with the church, they don't want to hear a story unless you have a nice little Jesus ribbon on it. Unless you've got it figured out. And unless Jesus showed up in a big dramatic way, you don't have a story. I think that is so sad. And I think we miss out on so much bravery and the conversation could be so big and we miss out on that because it's uncomfortable and it's it's something we don't like to talk about. Right. We miss out on connection. We miss out on healing. Yeah. We miss out on so much. Right. Right. By not making space for that messy middle. Yeah. It was funny when we were talking about this, I couldn't help but think of a situation I found myself in. So as you know, when I was 18, my parents disowned me and that cut off contact, not just with my immediate family, but much of my extended family. And which meant I wasn't invited to extended family gatherings for years. And and to be honest here, whether... The extended family knew I wasn't receiving the invitation or not. I don't know. It might have been they were assuming that the invitation was being extended through my parents. So I I don't know. I'm not trying to put any blame out there. But a few years ago, I was randomly invited to an extended family gathering. And I decided to attend the gathering. And my mother was there, which, which was totally fine. And I was surprised to see some of those who had invited me kind of circling their wagons around my mom. And I remember like thinking, what is going on? And I suddenly realized that this was intended to be some kind of kumbaya moment. They expected me to show up to initiate a conversation with my mom and act like all was forgiven. I mean, I told my husband, it was like, they were literally hoping to have front row seats to see Jesus healing in action. And I remember standing there just looking at it and realizing, no, you know, while 20 years ago, I would have played this game with you guys. I've picked up a couple boundaries along my journeys and I'm going to stick to those boundaries. And the atmosphere was like so heavy with disappointment. And the more I sat there, the more I realized this is strange. Like, I don't think I understand really what's going on because why would they expect me, the guest, after being disowned and gone for 20 years to do the hard work of coming back and being responsible for the hard work of initiating conversation and pretending that the last 25 years had never happened? It just felt really weird. Wow. That sounds really uncomfortable. You had shared about this experience with me some time ago, and it was interesting where kind of my internal reaction went (laughs) as I heard you talking about this, because there was a part of me that didn't find it strange. And then I wondered, I got curious about that. And I realized they were working off of a very different story than 
you were. And I think about the story that I knew when you left. And the story we heard was that you left home. And in that context, it was about you rejecting family and by extension, the extended family, because then you moved away. So in their minds, they were extending an olive branch to the teen who rejected them 20 years before. Okay, I know we've talked about this before, but I never thought of it as that, whatever it was, that gathering, to be an olive branch. That's interesting. They were working off the story that they heard about why you left. And I think that story is easier for them to live with than the story of what actually happened, which you've shared with me since then about <laughs> what actually happened. It speaks to the way that people choose the narratives that help them make sense of the world. We tend to choose the narratives that keep the status quo in place. That story that you left home at 18 didn't disrupt the status quo as much as the story of what actually happened. And the lack of curiosity about what happened is part of that whole picture, too. Yeah. Who gets the benefit of the doubt in that scenario? Who is seen as the one in need of protection? All those things come into play. Yeah. What I want to acknowledge right here is how that harmed you and how that caused you all kinds of secondary pain that shouldn't have been there. These were people who professed to love you and they should have been part of your safety net and they weren't. And as uncomfortable as that is to hear, I think it's really important that we acknowledge that for what it was. First of all, thank you for that. Sadly, I don't think my experience is necessarily unique. I mean, you know, the exact way it played out might be somewhat unique. But I wanted to talk about this because I think it happens so often. I think we forget to be curious. And I think we seek comfort instead of curiosity. And I think sometimes we're just okay with accepting an easy narrative. And I think we hurt people and even ourselves in that process. I just hope that we learn to pause and that we learn to be curious, but not in a nosy way mm -hmm. and hold space for what we don't know. I think oftentimes because we so desperately wish to have good or evil, God or the devil, heaven or hell, I mean, we want to have these rigid things. There is no space in this situation except for either my parents to be evil and me to be good or me to be evil and my parents to be good. And what actually happened for those gracious people who are listening. So in my home growing up, things were always kind of dysfunctional, abusive, chaotic. And I was deeply enmeshed in this family system. I firmly, firmly believed, and I think I needed to believe, that if I prayed and if I did the right thing, if I followed God, if I, if I, I was so in tune with God, I couldn't do anything but His will, that obviously His will would be to turn our family ship around. 
And one day I, for many reasons, decided it was time to speak up about some things that were happening. And unknown to me, when I left home that day to do so, I would never return. And my parents use the word disinherited. So basically they cut me out of the will. And it's the Amish version of disowning their children. And the explanation they gave in that meeting was that I was quite obviously going to hell and their money was not going to ever support someone who was going to hell. And later I was talking to someone else about this and the person's immediate response was, and it, it was out of love for me, absolutely out of love for me. But the words that were said was, oh, you aren't going to hell, they are. And I realized in the moment that that didn't make me feel good either. I realized that I didn't need the validation of them experiencing hell to feel better. I mean, eternal torment for them didn't ease my pain. And instead, I started thinking about this notion that we often create hell here on earth. We often live hell here on earth. And is that maybe what we're doing to people? This took time. This actually took me years to process. But I slowly understood that as wrong as their actions were, without even trying to justify any of what happened, also had this weird sense of compassion for them. Compassion for all their own unaddressed and probably actually silenced issues. I'm sure they had been silenced. Issues of family or what felt like family and church betrayal. Issues of poverty, mental health, and not experiencing the Lord's blessings as they were promised or expected to receive by following all these extreme rules that they had held to. And I realized that the solution for them was to double down on what they knew. There was more God, more prayer, and now more distancing from an evil teen who dared to differentiate from them and their views and who dared blow the whistle. And there was a part of me that was struggling to hold this sense of anger. And I mean, I was afraid. I, I wasn't equipped to handle life. I mean, literally, I left with $100 to my name. I, I was not equipped for life outside of my home and my community. But in all the fear and all the anger, I remember feeling this sense of compassion, but I didn't know what to do with it. Somehow, we need to learn to look at people with both of that and give people space when harm happens to them. The answer isn't immediate forgiveness. The answer isn't that happened two years ago. That happened five years ago. That happened 20 years ago. Shut up. Because learning how to navigate all of that in a healthy way is a journey and it's a process. And for God's sake, we need to quit demonizing people. We need to quit cutting their humanity. Even when they do inhumane things. Yeah. Instead of holding people responsible and saying, whoa, 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 this is not okay. We want to either demonize them or demonize the other party. It gets back to that idea of splitting, you know, splitting everything into right, wrong, good, bad. Right. Yeah. No nuance. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that because I think that that distance that you're describing here from a sense of, you know, when this happened to then feeling both compassion 
as well as your own pain in the situation. Just speaks to years of of growth, right? Spiritual, personal growth and a lot of work. And I really want to hold space for that and recognize the work that went into that. Thank you. As you pointed out too, in some situations where there's very clear harm done, this tension between compassion and harm done, right, is difficult in one way, but then it's also difficult just in a different way when the 85-15% split, for example, is switched, right? You know, when maybe parents are 85% fantastic, but there was 15% there that was harmful. Right. What do we do with that? How do we acknowledge that? How do we show up for ourselves, seek healing for ourselves without demonizing the 85%? I think that's really tricky ground that we often don't have a lot of tools to navigate. Well, and I think of a term that I've heard in the past several years that I think is such a fabulous term. And I've thought a lot about it with my own parenting. And the term is parental fragility. And it's this idea that somehow, because I'm a parent, I'm right. Or even if I'm not right, let's pretend I am. If you are a good child, you will pretend I'm infallible. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Like I said, I think about it a lot in connection with the way I was raised and the way I have seen other families operate, but then even the way I parent and my expectations. I mean, come on, we were we were raised to make our families look good. That was important. Right. Keeping silent about harmful situations, situations we were harmed in big or small ways was a virtue, right? right? right. We're socialized to downplay or minimize our own discomfort or, or, or even trauma. So, right. The authority figure, the authority figure always gets the benefit of the doubt. I mean, it's much easier to come down on a rebellious teen than an abusive parent, but even in church situations, the pastor or the preacher gets the benefit of the doubt over, I don't know, whomever they happen to be mad at at the moment. The authority figure always, oftentimes, most times trumps whatever's happening. They've got the power. Right. And in groups, but also as individuals, we tend to defer to the person with the most toxic behavior, <laughs> who's known <laughs> to have the most toxic behavior. And and just out of a, you know, a sense of wanting to keep the peace, wanting to preserve some sense of stability, it's easier to defer to the person with the most toxic behavior than to risk setting them off, which means then that that person with the toxic behavior can often be someone in authority. Right. Tangling with toxic behavior and addressing it gets really messy fast. It gets messy fast. And I think so many of us have just learned it's better not to do that. And I think it's time we start challenging that. Something else I've thought about was in some ways and sometimes maybe leaving a situation helps to be able to imagine a different way of life or something different. I'm not sure that had I always stayed, had I not left, that I would have ever been able to work through this stuff. And sometimes leaving is a gift. Painful, incredibly painful and scary. 
but it can also be a gift. I agree because it's really, really hard to make changes in the middle of a situation with these dynamics because they are interpersonal, right? It's a system, right? A family system could be a church system, a work system, a school system, right? Any kind of a system where people are interacting with these certain patterns of behavior, anyone who upsets that, that norm is often seen as the black sheep. And, and and it's really hard for any of us as an individual to be that, to take on that role. And leaving can be the best way to get some perspective and discover new ways of relating. Right. And let me also say this, and I think this is so important. So the funny part is in my life, I have been equally criticized for not forgiving my parents enough, but then I have other people coming to me in tears and with guilt, feeling like I have forgiven my parents far more than they can. And I actually hold both of those extremes with a lot of grace. I was able to leave. I didn't have to deal with this day in and day out. And again, that had its own fears and its own trauma. But I really think it's difficult to move on when you're in the middle of it. And I really, really want to encourage you not to compare yourself or to feel like you need to do better. It's a process. It's messy. It's not linear. Exactly. Exactly. You know, as I think about how these dynamics play out, I think about how our parents were victims of the culture too, shortchanged, cheated, whatever word you want to use. Because when we realize they were, they too were pressured to repress their pain, they had to defer to the authority figures in their life. And this manifested itself in their parenting because they came into it with the expectation that now for the first time, they were going to be able to get their due. Right. And they, without realizing it, right, there's not not anything conscious, but there is this sense of coming into parenthood wounded and feeling victimized. And I don't think there is anything quite so monstrous as a person who has this tunnel vision, seeing themselves as a victim. And when I say that, like, that's a really strong statement. I want to acknowledge that. But what I mean is that when we only see our victimhood and we don't see our own agency, then it justifies doing anything to anyone else because everyone else is seen as a threat. And we treat everyone, including our own children, as threats to our survival. And it's a doorway to toxic, toxic dynamics. Right. And I think another way our parents became victims was the whole promise they were given for parenting this way. I mean, Bill Gothard, Dr. Dobson, Michael Pearl, They all had this formula that came with these guarantees. And all of a sudden, they have their kids walking away from them or they have splintered relationships. And they're like, what the heck? And I hold a certain amount of compassion for parents who got sucked up in that because they were promised something they didn't get. And I don't think they ever thought about that. I feel so sorry for the generations of parents 
who have been sucked into that view. The more that I understand about child development, brain development, the more I understand about trauma and its effect on our lives, the more I realize those authoritarian parenting methods really tear at the potential for a relationship. One of the many problems with those approaches to child rearing is that it teaches parents how to detach from their children. And I have recently been reading some of Gabor Mate's work on trauma and ADHD specifically, but he talks about this in other terms too, but he talks about attunement between parents and young children and how essential this is for children's development of safety and their long-term sense of well-being in the world. And right. when I contrast that view of child development with or compare it to this authoritarian punitive approach to child rearing, I realize that is teaching parents to detach. I mean, it's setting kids up for all kinds of issues down the road, as well as the parents. And I think we are seeing that in so many situations, it turns out you can't beat your kids into loving you. Right. Who knew? Right. Or demand respect. Right. You you can't. Not long term. Not unless your children aren't fully developed human beings who have autonomy right, right. and a free will. Right. You know, something in one of my classes a few years ago, something she talked about so much was the language we know, even the language we speak affects the way we view the world. And the words we use and the words that we are taught or not taught is incredibly important. When we aren't given a language for what's happening to us, it can take us years to figure out and to make sense and understand the ways it has influenced us. And I think the more isolated the community is, the less education that's available, the more I see all these damaging effects. I think that's another reason that this idea of instant forgiveness is so important because many times we haven't had the language to make sense of it. Oftentimes we were raised to detach. And I just I just think we need to give both ourselves and others and even those who have harmed us grace. And it's okay if it takes you years to get there, particularly for those who harmed you. It's okay if it takes you years, but I think it's worth wrestling through. There for a while, I felt like I was a pig rolling around in the mud in my anger. And it was scary. There for a bit, I was like, this is probably the worst sin I can commit. I mean, come on. But it was also some of my bravest work. And I think if you trust whatever you're feeling and whatever you're processing and whatever you're experiencing, you're going to be okay. I agree. I think sometimes you know, when we're in the middle of it, in the middle of a difficult situation like that, we don't have the luxury of experiencing our feelings or feeling our feelings, right? That that rolling around in the mud, right? Right. That metaphorical rolling around in the mud. But when we do have an opportunity for that, right? When we have come to a place of at least momentary <laughs> stability or safety and can really feel our feelings. That right. is so essential, such an important part of the process. And it doesn't mean that we are necessarily stuck there. 
The only way out is through spiritual bypassing, right? Rushing to forgiveness, rushing to say, oh, it's fine. Oh, they were just doing the best they could. Kind of pasting over the discomfort is not processing. (laughs) In fact, all of that, that's what gets you stuck. Yes. That gets you so stuck so quickly. It's it feels cleaner and it looks nicer on the outside. And and it looks like a Jesus ribbon sometimes. And it works much better when you're telling telling your story, right? Whether that's right. in a public setting or writing a book or wherever, and you can wrap it up nice and neat. Right. But I think it's also really important to acknowledge that we can appreciate. And when I say appreciate, I mean that in the most general sense of the term, like we can see the complexity in the situation in which our parents did what they had to do to survive, right? However misguided, harmful it may have been. And we can also be just as clear about how we want to do things differently and what we're going to do differently. And being really conscious of breaking those toxic cycles is an important part of that. And I think maybe we were brought up with this idea that resolution means that all is forgiven and forgotten and it's like it never happened. And we never speak of it again. And we never speak of it again. Yeah. But all that is doing is continuing the cycle and we can see with compassion and we can set our boundaries and we can choose to do things differently and we can choose a very different path and they may not like it and we will be fine without their approval. A mantra that's been really helpful to me has been, I am safe, I am happy, I am loved. And that is something I came to in a therapy session where I was talking about some of these issues with my therapist. And, and I was, you know, saying, I have a right to be happy and safe and loved. And in the context of, you know, the disapproval of others. And then it hit me, but I already am those things. Right. I don't need that from others because I already have that. So if others disapprove of me, that's okay. Because I am already safe. I'm already happy. I'm already loved. That is amazing and so true. And I think it's something we forget. And I'm going to say that to myself over and over. Yeah. I am happy. I am loved. I am safe. And I think another strategy that's really taken on new meaning for me just in the last year or two is the idea of reparenting. And I know that's something you've thought about a lot too. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but I think sometimes we talk about the inner child as kind of this kind of a joke, kind of right. psychology kind of a joke, but I don't think it's a joke. I don't and think, I think either. <laughs> and I think reparenting is a really valuable tool in this. And maybe we can talk about that next time. I would love to. I think learning how to reparent yourself is one of the best gifts I've given myself. Absolutely. All right. We'll see you next time. See you next time, guys. spending time with us today. The resources and materials we've mentioned are linked in the show notes and on Facebook at Uncovered Life Beyond. What are your thoughts about college and recovery from high demand religion? We know you have your own questions and experiences, and we want to talk about the topics that matter to you. Share them with us at UncoveredLifeBeyond at gmail.com. That's UncoveredLifeBeyond at gmail.com. 
If you enjoyed today's show and found value in it, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast app. This helps others find the show. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. Until next time, stay brave, stay bold, stay awkward. Stay awkward.